Welcome, adventurers. The changeling rot has been months in Solvara, gathering information and under many different forms, subtly influencing the course of several lives. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon They sat on the large rear terrace of the south side of the south wing. Though the summer was passing quickly in the fall, and nights were beginning to take on an autumnal chill, the afternoon sun was still warm. The climate in Solvara was always mild. Other than official functions, Merriman was not one to entertain for the most part. The running of a Vetdoma house and all of its holdings and interests kept her more than busy from day to day. Merriman despised the political posturing and the subtle games of innuendo, the constant judgment of station and power that took place at the average gathering where any more than two of the Vetdoma were present. She was good at the dance. She just found it tiresome and false. Her preference was to be straightforward and speak her mind. That is why she took some small comfort in her guests' company. The Comte Maduka Oyenlola. The Dea del Fiori house and that of the Oyenlolas had clashed in the past. But like herself, Comte Oyenlola was a veteran of the Null Wars. So when her father passed two years after the war's end and Merriman assumed the position of matriarch of the Dea del Fiori house, it was one of her first acts to meet with the Comte and talk soldier to soldier. Any misunderstandings or mistrusts that had been part of their house's past were put aside or put to rest. They were oddities, the Comte and her. She knew of only two others among the Vetdoma that had served in the war. The Vetdoma had supported the war in their own ways, with supplies and funds. But other than those two, the Comte and herself, it was difficult for the rich and powerful to find reason to putting their actual persons in harm's way. Comptoyan Lola served as a high-ranking quartermaster, coordinating supply lines and overseeing the acquisition and distribution of all that it took to keep an army up and running. So it wasn't though he was ever truly in harm's way. Not in the way that she was. But he was a soldier nonetheless, and he had taken his job seriously. He had read the reports, saw the losses, knew the figurative and literal cost of the war better than almost anyone. It was this knowledge of loss, this intimate familiarity with the risk taken and the scars that never really healed that bonded them together. It made the masks unnecessary between them. And so, for this one hour, they could just be themselves. Lunch had been a simple affair. Plates now cleared, they sat in their respective chairs, sipping brandy from oversized crystal glasses, staring out over the vineyards instead of looking at one another. The last few bars had passed in silence, which was not unusual. The lack of needing to say anything was one of the things Miramin enjoyed about these lunches. 
Beside her, Maduka raised his glass and drank. And as he brought it back down, he let out a scowling noise. Do you ever worry about the next generation, Merriman? Whether they will have all the fortitude to face adversity? Merriman let out her own grunt, one that said, Yes, I do, and speak on. Maduka shifted in his chair. I see my children and the lives they lead, caught up in the latest trends in art and fashion, about who has said what about whom, holed up in the walls of the sugar sculpture we call Solvara, and I must admit it breaks my heart. They know nothing of the farmers and shopkeepers, the shepherds and blacksmiths that chose to set aside their livelihoods to become soldiers, to fight, and to die to defend this province. Merriman took a large swig of her drink, as if the comte's words were bitter in her own mouth. No, instead, they prance around from bowl to bowl, fretting if they do not have the latest and most expensive clothes. And they are blind, blind to their own privilege, totally devoid of the knowledge that our place atop this tower is only secured by the foundation on which it stands. The hard-working people of this province. Maduka finished with another drink and a bah before saying, If one of my children was so much as hit with a stick, I fear they would take to their room for weeks, claiming grievous injury, not being able to differentiate between their body and their pride. Merriman barked out a bitter laugh at this that died almost as soon as it had begun. Don't I know it, she replied. She herself had never had children. It was just never something she wanted. But when her brother and his wife had gone missing, she had taken in her nephew, Valerian, as her ward. She had tried her best to form a bond with the child, but other than their shared interest in the arcane, she had found the child hard to understand. He showed no interest in the balls and politics of the houses that Maduka spoke of. Merriman had tried to teach him to ride a horse. He was abysmal. She tried to show him some use of basic weapons, the dagger and the staff. As bad as he was with riding, he was worse with weapons. Even at a slow pace, the boy had missed a block she was trying to show him, and she had wound up breaking his nose. Her attempts to involve him in the day-to-day -day running of the house had also gone awry. Even when assigned the simplest of tasks, she would return later to find the task half done, Valerian's head in a book. Her musings were interrupted again as Maduka stirred into words once more. Do you know what I have been thinking on, Merriman? She turned to look at him, an eyebrow raising in question. I have been thinking I might send my children out into the world with a single chest and a few retainers. Assign them some meaningless task or quest, break their blanket of comfort, and open their eyes. Merriman laughed in earnest this time. I don't mean sending them into the glass sea with naught but a water skin or dropping them off in the streets of Jamato, penniless. I just mean out into the world, where they must interact with people, solve problems on their own. See that the world doesn't come to all held in fine gloves and served on a silver platter. Merriman still smiled, but the words took hold somewhere in her mind. 
and she found herself nodding. She hadn't been able to get through to the boy, but maybe, just maybe. And then, as if she had conjured him with one of her spells, Alarion himself came through the wide glass doors. He stopped, seeing there was company, hesitated as if he might go back inside without saying anything, but then reconsidered and walked to where they sat. The boy bobbed an awkward nod in the comp's direction before addressing his aunt. Good day, aunt. I just wanted you to know that I was heading to the Resilium. Merriman tried her hardest not to roll her eyes. Where else would he be going? Are you just now getting up? She inquired. Alarion's face flushed, eyes casting down. I was up quite late last night reading. He trailed off, but then his head popped up. I have been put onto something quite fascinating. A good gentleman I met yesterday showed me. Merriman could tell this would go quite long if she allowed it, and so she cut him off. Alarion, I still have company, whom you have not formally greeted, by the way. Now make your hellos and your goodbyes, and you can tell me of this fascinating discovery over dinner. Alarion blushed again and stepped toward the comp, who was standing from his chair to offer a hand. Not seeming to see the glass Maduka was holding in his hand, Alarion quickly reached out, knocking the drink loose. The brandy spilled against the comp's fine shirt, and the glass fell to the stone tile and shattered. Alarion turned the shade of a ripe strawberry. He fell to his knees and began gathering up the broken pieces. The comp took a napkin from the table and began to kneel as well. On the way down, he tottered and lost his balance. Maduka's hand shot out to catch himself but instead his hand landed atop Alarion's, pressing the young man's hand into the broken crystal. Alarion let out a yelp as his hand began to bleed. The Comte swore and then said, Apologies, boy. Yeah, and pressed the fine white linen against the wound. It began to stain immediately. Alarion looked at the bloody napkin and swooned. Maduka steadied him. He removed the napkin from the cut. Heart is deep. It is going to need stitches. He turned to Merriman. Unless you still have any squad healers on call, he said with a grin. Merriman could hardly believe the whole interaction. It was just so, so Alarian. She stood, calling for an attendant. For a few quick bars there was hustle and bustle, and instructions for Alarian to be taken to his room until the surgeon could be summoned. When all had cleared, it was just herself and the comp on the veranda once again. He stood facing her, his shirt stained with brandy and blood. She wasn't quite sure what to say. The comp smiled. That boy needs to get out and see the world. There was a pause, and then they both burst into laughter. Well, he continued with a gesture to his ruined shirt. I guess I am finished with my drink. I should be off. There is always business to attend to. A sigh of resignment. It was good to see you, Merriman. She dropped a small curtsy and then stepped forward. It is always good to see you, Maduka. She smiled and took his arm. Let me walk you to your carriage. A candle flickered at Merriman's desk. 
It was well past soul set. The last flames of a dying fire flickered in the fireplace, the embers beginning their mesmerizing dance of orange and black. Sleep usually came quickly to Merriman. She had never been one to kick and roll, to lie awake and think. Even before the war, but especially since, usual business was head down, eyes shut, and sleep followed in a few beats. Tonight, however, she had retired to her room after her nightly stroll, sat in the chair by her writing desk, and had not moved since. Instead, she stared alternately between the flames of the candle and those of the fire. Her mind was elsewhere. The Comte's words kept coming back to her over and over, like a leaf trapped in an eddy. And they are blind, blind to their own privilege, totally devoid of the knowledge that our place atop this tower is only secured by the foundation on which it stands, the hard-working people of this province. I just mean out into the world, where they must interact with people, solve problems on their own, see that the world doesn't come to all held in fine gloves and served on a silver platter. Maybe she had been thinking about it wrong all these years. She had been trying to explain how things worked to the boy herself, to train him with her own hands, to teach him how to exist here in Solvara. But maybe it was the safety of Solvara itself that was the very problem, the very thing that was holding him back. A jaunt into the real world may be just the thing to build the boy's confidence, to bring him out of his shell. She leaned forward, putting her elbows on the desk, rubbing her weary eyes. The boy had prattled on at dinner, about the creus deon and dare of all things. But there it was. He had gone on about a man he had met at the Resilium, and how the records of the creus deon and dare had been altered over time. It was complete and total poppycock. It was perfect. If the boy's interest was piqued, he would be all the more likely to agree to the proposition. She would send him out to investigate the supposed anomalies of history. He would have to travel, stay at inns, talk to people. He could not be sent out alone, of course. He would be an easy mark, even in the relative safety of today's province. The amount of trouble he could get in on this fool's errand would be minimal. But who could she call on to go with him on such a menial errand? Who would she trust to keep the boy safe as he played at adventurer? The fire flickered out and died, the room dimmed, the candle the only remaining source of light. As the flame danced, her mind fumbled, and then landed on a person, a person who had served under her in the Null Wars. It seemed a cruel task, but he had always insisted he owed her a debt. By the light of the single candle, she pulled a parchment out of the desk drawer, unstoppered the ink, dabbing the quill tip in. She looked at the paper for a few beats, and then began to write. To Sergeant Orteval Bonegrinder, re, a favor. Sergeant, I hope this letter finds you well. I know it has been some time since we last spoke, and that you are a man of free will, so please take what I am about to say as only a request. You had said upon our last meeting that you owed me a debt, which I believe to be 
patently untrue. We all did what we could to watch each other's backs during the Knoll Wars. The room was dark. The door was locked. The curtain drawn. How did the lunch go? What news? The master's voice sounded in his head. Blood burned green in the candle. The boy is of the moth's line. The marionettes dance to my strings. He will search for the Creus Deonander. Rot's thought sent in return. One breath, two, and then a reply. I am most pleased. Stay until he leaves. Then meet me in Ardisport. I need your whispers to stir the hobgoblins. We now know that the quest of Valerian and his gathered companions was not an accident. But unbeknownst to his aunt, it was also not a fool's errand. Stay tuned next week for the beginning of a new tale. And so another tale ends. I uh, just wanted to remind you that I do have a website, www.talesfromthedungeonpodcast.com, uh, where you can check stuff out. Uh, there's more info and a little bit about me and just some more thanks on there. And as far as thanks goes, it's, it's always hard for me to say thank you enough for being a part of what I'm doing and uh, kind of witnessing uh, my creation process. So thank you to you. Uh, if you want to help, reviews are always the first, foremost, and bestest way for more people to find this show. So iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you are, leave a review. It really does help other people find the show. So thank you very much. All the best to you.